This is the IPSI-SDA Media Network. I wanted to invite you, if you can, if you're able to, um, during this Black History Month celebration, uh, to consider a text that we have, that we're familiar with. So I wanted to invite you, if, uh, if you're able to stand as we read the first four verses of John chapter 11, uh, the word of God. Um, so I wanted to invite you to stand, if you can, in reverence uh, to the word of God. John chapter 11, I will read in your hearing from the New King James Version, from John chapter 11. The Word of God in John chapter 11 says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. For our consideration today, your brother will rise again. Let us pray. Eternal God in heaven, you have kept us all from dangers seen and unseen. You have brought us into this sacred place and space, and so now, Lord, we ask for the miracle of broken bread. Many times before, Lord, you have worked this miracle without any help from me. So now, God, I ask that you would once again hide me behind the cross, that the glory of the cross, that the risen Savior might be seen spiritually, that Jesus would appear. Somebody's hurting today. Somebody's in trouble today. Somebody needs your special touch today. God, may no one go home empty. Do what you do best. Save your people. In Jesus' name, we pray. Let all God's people say amen and amen. I invite you to sit in God's house. I wanted to open by sharing with you an anecdote, something that happened to me, a story. I, I recall the personal anger that I experienced in June of 2020 after the murder of George Floyd. Remember that happened in May of 2020. I felt the need to spend time with my adult daughters and so I took time to visit them who lived out of state, about a two hour drive. I just wanted to be with them. I wanted to be their dad to hold them in my arms and tell them what they already knew, that their pop loved them. I was glad that I went. It was summertime. On my way back home, I couldn't resist going for a swim in one of the beautiful beaches in Lake Michigan. If you know me, you know that I'm half otter. I'd love to spend a lot of time in the water. Water was still cold even though the Michigan sun had brought the temperature up to the low 90s. 
I was soaking up the goodness of God in the cool water. There were very few people swimming that day. There was a white man who was also swimming nearby, and it wasn't long before we greeted each other and started a polite conversation. He was from Minneapolis, and we eventually drifted onto the topic of George Floyd. He shared his thoughts on the tragedy and was clearly brokenhearted about Floyd's murder. As we talked, I could sense that he wanted to do more about race conditions in America. He had a burden and he seemed to want absolution. He seemed to want it from me. He seemed to want me to forgive him. He was confused, but but he couldn't reckon, and perhaps because he couldn't reckon to himself, that he had not done anything wrong personally. He explained that he did not have any slaves, was clearly not personally upset that he knew of with any black or brown Americans, and he held no ingrained issues against black or brown Americans, at least that he could surmise. This fellow Christian, for we started talking about Jesus, shared that he was burdened with guilt. He was illiterate on the systemic issues related to race in America. And I realized that he was, as all of us are, on a unique journey of race reconciliation, at least those that are interested in reconciling. He also just wanted, it seemed to me, he just wanted to talk. He just wanted to talk. It was clear that we were both as brothers traumatized by what we had seen a few weeks earlier on national stage. As we talked, I, I could not help consider my own biases and my own bias trying not to put up a shield because he was so racially illiterate and lacked the experiences that were a part of my daily reality as a black man in these two Americas. He was also, uh, forgiving him, right, unaware of his massive privilege. The truth is that in America, being Asian, Latino, black has never carried the same advantages, advantages as being white. My impression of him was tempered because the water was so cold. And it was clear that he was trying to understand America better and his place in America. He said that it was as though a light bulb had been turned on after what he saw. He said the death of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd, I added. He concurred. We both eventually went our own way following the swim. We were cordial. We shared our thoughts about our hopes and our families. We agreed that our faith compelled us to act when things were wrong, although we were not angry with each other, it was clear that we were not from the same America. And it was as though we had a little overlap in time and space, as though we were in a separate multiverse. This swim in Lake Michigan seemed to be a wormhole or, or a schism for those techies that are in the house, where we each saw the same thing and agreed to fix the same thing in our own multiple reality. But how jarring it is that there really is only one racialized society. 
and to the brother we were talking about, George Floyd, and to so many others who look like him, the cost is too high. Certainly, my own biases were seeping through as he was talking. I don't know if he could see it, but I could see his. It wasn't long after that day that I started an entire sermon series on justice. The conversation with my white brother at the beach added a sense of clarity to the urgency and frustration. And the question kept going, what took so long for my white brothers and sisters to awaken? And why did the awakening still seem like not all were completely conscious? I have not completely answered this question. Of this I am certain, each person's awakening, regardless of what we look like, seems to be coupled with implicit biases. I feel that as a people of faith, it is the work of the church to each play a role and further work waking one another up. How I wish that my white brother, whose name I cannot remember and wouldn't say if I could, how he could hear this message today. And I would subtitle my message, a letter to my white brother who swam with me in Lake Michigan. What more could I have said to my dear white brother? If you listen closely, you will find that I am addressing this message in a sense to him, what I wish I would have said to my beloved brother, who I talked to for about 20 minutes that day in Lake Michigan. You see, my dear white brother, I know you love Jesus. I know you do. There are many black men and women in our country who resemble Lazarus. And there is a word from the Lord because God has something to say. Lazarus will rise again. Looking like Lazarus means that black men and women are dressed in the clothes of death of prison uniforms. Uh, Looking like Lazarus means that others will find themselves lying lifeless under a white sheet on the street as another victim of police brutality. I couldn't bring myself to see Tyrese. I couldn't do it. I started to do it, but I couldn't, I couldn't see another black man being beaten to death by the police. Based on their life context, many of these men and women don't feel like God or anyone else, for that matter, will help them when their neighborhoods are over-policed. Sentencing for crimes is much harsher than for their white counterparts. And encounters with law enforcement are frequent and often fatal. They feel like they are dead before actually dying. A letter to my white brother who swam with me in Lake Michigan, I would say that I call each of these brothers and sisters Lazarus. These black men and women are in need of a modern day holistic resurrection because they are wrapped in the bandages of a system that greatly limits their personal progress and life expectancy. I believe that racism is not just personal, it is also structural, residing in all of America's institutions. Therefore, when well-intentioned white people ask, or people of other color ask, what can we do? 
the answer must go deeper than mere personal improvement. It behooves us to find ways that we can help to loosen Lazarus from the racist elements in our culture that bind and kill him. We will not truly overcome racism in our hearts without intervention from Christ, who had his own unique way of addressing and affecting policies, structures, and institutions. And there are seven things that I would like us to take away with, seven things that we can learn from the Word of God that Jesus did in chapter 11 that we can do to help to loosen Lazarus. So when I'm talking about Lazarus will rise, these are the seven things I want to talk about. We'll come back to them later. John chapter 11 records as a background several things that people with repentant hearts can do to bear fruit consistent with repentance. Mm -hmm. John 11 tells the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. This particular paramount miracle is key in the ministry of Jesus because it eventually leads to the Passion Week, to, to that time when his own death and subsequent resurrection was just days away. It's also significant that the name Lazarus has two meanings in the Hebrew language. Let's not go too far and too far away from his name. The root is taken from the name Eleazar. And depending on the context, Lazarus can either mean without help or God has helped me. Oh, do you see the double entendre that John is doing? In Lazarus's context, Jesus chose to help somebody who was without help. Aren't you glad that Jesus still helps somebody? Come on, somebody. Jesus does more than help. Jesus saves. His very name is Yahweh, is salvation. Jesus helped him after sickness took his life at what appeared to be an early age leaving him more than crippled, leaving him bound dead, head to foot in a cold, dark sepulcher. It looked hopeless for Lazarus. But I wanted to tell you that there is a word from the Lord today. Our sermonic text focuses on the introduction of this word, sickness, asthenio in the original language which means to be weak, to be feeble, to be without strength, to be powerless, to be needy. He whom thou lovest is astheneo. The one that you love is weak, feeble, without strength, powerless and needy. And there might be somebody hearing this today who has had an encounter, even if briefly, with Astheneo. And if you live long enough, sickness will come to visit your house. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The medical term asthenia comes from this Greek root. Sooner or later, this sickness will come to you and to your loved ones. Now, we need to be clear right from the start that, yes, there are many similarities between black men and black women, you see, Lazarus, there's a sickness that's going on. And Lazarus, you should know that many people think that you're responsible yourself for the sickness. Mm -hmm. To be careful with the hermeneutics. There's some people that look at this and say, well, Lazarus, um, 
somebody's reasoning that Lazarus is cursed because he did something to himself or you neglected or, or acted in, in some way. Uh, and that's why, that's why you got sick because there's something that, that you did, Black Lazarus, that got you into this position. I have heard this takeaway from some of our beloved citizens and I wanted to come by and with love and grace set the record straight. Our beloved citizens who think that Lazarus is shiftless, always sitting around, collecting public aid, should go and get a job and produce something. They conclude that his sickness is self-inflicted. And what they fail to understand that a lion's share of the inventions that we see and use in our daily lives have been there because black Lazarus and his creativity, ingenuity, hard work, and simple genius created it by the grace of God. Oh, but there are so many Lazaruses, somebody might say, that are sick. Well, wouldn't you be sick if you continually drank water laced with lead? Wouldn't that cause some sickness? How did the lead get there in the first place and not in other communities? In other words, what if some of the sickness was connected to a toxic structure or system? What if the same structure paints him looking like a thug when really he is not? Uh, What if the structure from the beginning was founded on racializing laws that made it nearly impossible for black families to break even at the end of the month? What if the sick system contributed to his sickness? What if whilst helping him get sick, the same system helped other systems get healthy and wealthy, lifting up other people who didn't look like him? Oh, we should move so briskly away from sickness in chapter 11 of John. The one whom thou lovest is sick, sick from mass incarceration, sick from undue and unjust sentencing, getting a bad rap as a family man, being afraid to be with him in the elevator. That happens to me all the time. Sick of being followed by law enforcement or undercover police and security admire. I know who they all are. I sit down and talk to them about Jesus. Just because I'm black or brown, I'm sick of the hype, sick of the inequity. Aren't you sick of it? Well, Pastor Carmona, everyone knows that we had it bad so long, so long, long ago in the mid-1700s in America, back when it was really bad, uh, Pastor Carmona. That was now, this is, uh, that was then, this is now. Well, no, no, it was not so long ago. Uh, this last week, for example, yeah. Black farmers, you know, in the United States lost roughly $326 billion worth of acreage during the 20th century, according to a recent study that quantifies that value in our present day numbers. Advocates for farmers of color have long argued that for decades, the USDA, that's the United States Department of Agriculture, the federal executive department responsible for developing and executing federal laws related to farming, that USDA, uh uh-huh, denied loans, credit, 
representation, including leading to a large loss of land ownership, particularly among black farmers, the discussions being had this last week. Right? So well, what's the problem? Well, the problem, if you're, if you're a farmer, you understand that most farmers, most of them, regardless of their ethnicity, don't have the amount of cash needed for the initial investment to start farming. And so because they're feeding the nation, the federal government is going to step in and give them federal loans and grants to help them purchase the land, the equipment, the seed, get the training that then they can sell their product and repay the loan. So black farmers for decades have been denied these services by the USDA while they approved white farmers. And then if you were black and did get your application through and it was accepted, they would slow walk the process, short them when the money came out and deny them credit so that they could get seed to then put the seed in the ground, not give audience to their appeals because they're crying out for injustice, failed to give them support to help them when drought came, failed to give them cutting edge information on farming strategies. I'm talking about something that's been happening in your lifetime. The federal government uh, settled the lawsuit in 1999, filed by black farmers and paid more than 2.4 billion. You heard the first number I gave you, I'll just repeat it. 2.4 billion and then the research shows that court filings showed that there were still problems afterward, even after this lawsuit. So then if you heard the number that I first gave, black farmers lost over $326 billion. Let me say it again, $326 billion. And in this lawsuit were repaid almost $2.4 billion. So you've known, the, you see the math that only leaves a balance of $323.6 billion. Uh, that's real money that somebody else has. They are owed at least $323.6 billion in our dollars today. And then may have the nerve to say you should work really hard. Yeah, why, why don't you just get a job and actually sweat for your food? Learn to sweat. That's what my grandfather did. Nobody helped us. No, no. I, I wanted to say that, that that figure, 326, the researchers say is a conservative estimate. In, in 1910, black owners owned more than 16 million acres of land. In 1910, Black farmers owned more than 16 million acres of land, according to experts. And in 2017, when the most agricultural recent census was done, that figure was just about 4.7 million acres, about half of the farmland in America. What we're saying is that Lazarus needs help. The same sickness that affects the black farmer is repeated in education, housing, medicine, and just about all kinds of areas of life. The truth I want to tell you today is that there are black men and women who go to work. They love to work. They love their families. They love to invent things. They love Jesus Christ. They love to create, to sing, to play, to teach, to counsel, to preach, to have God-given callings, dreams, and aspirations. Don't believe the hype about Lazarus. They hunger and thirst just like any other man and woman and it is that there are these structures in place, these 
practices that, that are normalized, that severely injure opportunity for black and brown cases. But Lazarus, I am so glad that your case has landed in the hands of Jesus. If I left the sermon here, it would be horrible. We have to talk about Jesus' hands in just a little bit. You see, Jesus, if I didn't say it, is at the center of John chapter 11. It might seem like the story is about Lazarus. Lazarus is in the picture, but he's far in the corner. The center of John 11 is Yahweh himself. You see, Lazarus, even in his dead condition, is about to have the encounter of his life. Come on, somebody. Oh, there's a word from the Lord. There's a word for Lazarus. Your identity has always been in the hands of Jesus. Can we get into the word? Is that all right? See, when you have issues, always go back to the word of God, prayerfully and reverently. Oh, of course, he loves you. So we are surprised by the next verse that I didn't read. John 11, verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yes, he loves you. We, we know that. Right. Correct. Precisely. Right? Right? He loves you. Are you sure that's all in this verse? You see, it is only when you read this text in the original language. I'm trying not to jump up here. I don't want to hurt my knee. Come on, somebody. It's only when, it's only when you read this in the original language <laughs> that the words start saying, preach me, preach me, preach me. What's happening in the Koine Greek? Oh, by the way, there's no substitute in reading the Bible in any other language in the original language. You say, Pastor, I can't read Greek and Hebrew. Well, get into your Greek and Hebrew class so you can see what's being written. You understand that the Bible was not written in English or Spanish. There's, there's truth in there. It seems like John is repeating himself. Why are you saying, now Jesus loved Martha and his sister and her sister and Lazarus? Why are you saying that? When we explore the message from, from Martha and Mary in Greek, you see, we strike gold. You see, verse 3 and verse 5 use the word love in English, you see. It is the message that Martha sent them, the one whom you love is sick, right? Don't you know that this Bible written in these languages that are ancient, did you know that there are six different words for the word love in Koine Greek? Yes, and the Holy Spirit, oh, thank you, Holy Spirit, only allowed two forms of the word love to enter the Bible. The first form of love in Koine Greek is phileo, or brotherly love, to be a friend of, to have affection toward. And the second one is what? Agape, which is unconditional love, to be well-pleased, to love without any, any strings attached. Oh, the grace of Jesus. The grace of Jesus. You who know me know that I was going to bring grace into a message no matter what, right? Because what can we say? Grace is the central truth around which all other truths cluster, said E.G. White in Gospel Workers, page 315. In verse 3, Mary and Martha used the form phileo. Come on, somebody. That was your shouting moment. I'll unpack it. The Holy Spirit, in verse 5, used agape. Mm. 
Verse 3, Mary and Martha send the message to Jesus about the condition of their brother, saying, the one whom you phileo, the one whom you care for who is your friend, the one that you are kind of fond of, the one that you have a little bit of affection toward with a strong feeling, is sick, feeble, and without strength and powerless. I am so glad for the Holy Spirit because that's the word that they used. They thought that the relationship between Lazarus and Jesus, as far as Jesus was concerned, was that Jesus was just a friend of Lazarus. But the Holy Spirit fixed it in verse 5. Now Jesus agaped them. Jesus did what? He was deeply fond of them, dearly loved them, was well pleased with them, was contented with them, was happy to see them, was deeply, deeply in compassion and darling intimacy, with no strings attached, was morally and eternally committed to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Oh, that was your shouting moment, black Lazarus, Mary and Martha, the closest family to Lazarus, didn't know the fullness of his commitment to Jesus. You are more than just a buddy. You are more than just a friend. He has more than just warm feelings about you. It is his agape that keeps you after all that you have done. After all of the videos that he has watched about you, the beds that you've gotten out of, the things that you've drank, the things that you've eaten, painted on your body, pierced yourself, failed to eat chocolates and dandelion leaves, spoken horrific things, acted even worse against Christ, his father, and said whatever to the still small voice of the Holy Ghost, Jesus still says to you, I am deeply fond of you. You are dearly beloved to me. I am well pleased with you. I am well contented with you. You are certainly and most wholeheartedly welcomed by me with compassion, darling intimacy, with no strings attached. I am morally and eternally committed to you. Don't you want to be friends with Jesus? Oh, Lazarus, Yahweh is salvation, Jesus he loves you. He agapes you. I, I know somebody's wondering about all that rotten behavior I just talked about and heart change. I need to let you know that it is the grace of God that leads us to repentance. Behavior modification does not lead us to salvation. Oh, Jesus did not have to go to Bethany. He's Jesus. He could have when he heard the news right there could have just said a word right there without traveling the five miles from where he was. He could even have just thought it. And Lazarus would have been made whole. But Jesus had another plan for Lazarus. Uh, he was more than just sick. He would be dead from his sickness. And Jesus eventually said, I will go to him. I, I'm so glad that Jesus is in this chapter. All oh, the many struggles of black and brown Americans that you go through. I want to let you know that Jesus is at the center of our deliverance, of all the things that I wanted to preach on today. 
I wanted to preach on so much today from John chapter 11. I was being pulled preacher in so many different ways. I, I wanted to preach about Mary and Martha, how they were fussing at Jesus. How come, how come you know, like if you would have come here, right? And we, everything would have worked out if you just would have come. Uh, I, I wanted to preach about their encounter with the great I am at the resurrection, how certainly the flesh covering Jesus must have struggled when he, when he said, ego e me, when he said, I am the resurrection, when he said, fundamentally, you think that the resurrection is an event, you think it is a concept. Basically, I'm saying, Jesus said, resurrection is a person standing right in front of you. How, how I wanted to give you a full treatise on our part in removing the stone, uh, uh, co-laboring with God to roll away the stones that are in front of Lazarus, but no, that's not it. How I wanted a full explanation on how we need to leave things that are dead at the tomb. There might be some things that we need to leave that have been holding us back that we need to leave completely, but that's for another time. How I wanted us to consider that Jesus is never early, he's never late, he is always on time, and his time is the time. And how I wanted to, to explain and expound on, on how we should ask him to reset our clocks to Cairo's time, to his time, but that's for another time. How I wanted to share uh, the, the, that with weeping deity, uh, Jesus cried and lamenting, and something happens when you love very deeply, sometimes you lament. Sometimes you have to cry. How I wanted to spend time talking about the reason he cried, not because of, of death. Death doesn't rattle Jesus. It's the other way around. He, he wept because the answer to their issues was standing in front of them. and They did not recognize him as the answer. His heart was filled with compassion, with agape about their condition, and they st still the ones who were closest to him thought he only loved them like a nice companion. When it seems like God doesn't show up or the solution that you thought you had wasn't working out, when stressful situations keep compounding, Jesus has not forgotten you. Planning is something that no one could have imagined, not the planning of God. How I wanted to explain how Mary and Martha did have an idea of how Jesus should heal. I think there are times that sometimes God does it in a way that we specifically are, are not planning. Uh, well, he must be a formula. He did it that way for sister so-and-so. He did it that way for brother so-and-so. So he must do it this way for me. No, no, he is God. He's not a machine. He's not Santa Claus. He cannot be, uh, he cannot be put in an arm bar with his own mind and reverence. God has thoughts and thinks about ways to saving you, and he has a thousand ways to solve your problem. It's so easy for him to solve your most complicated problem that he has to count backward from eternity to distract himself. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. They're different from ours. How I wanted to preach a full sermon on how we think that we are God's handlers. Let the messengers to Jesus do this and he'll come and he'll do this. He'll raise his hands. He'll lay his hand over Lazarus. Were they in for a surprise? No, no. What they didn't know, what Mary and Martha had no clue about Jesus. They didn't even have a, an idea was they could not have fathomed that there would be a church in a place called Ypsilanti, Michigan. 
that there would be a phenomenon called online and that an unnamed person there listening would be injured, chained, traumatized, broken, embarrassed, behind on financial obligations, emotionally needy to hear that Jesus knows what's happening and is planning something better than anything you asked for. You should just start your praise party now because his will is better than our best prayers. Compared to whatever it is that we think we're getting, Jesus is better. Even if Lazarus died, he said, your brother will rise again. During this Black History Month, here is the message of Jesus ringing, Lazarus, come forth. Come on and play for me. I'm ending to my dear white brother. I love you wherever you may be. I believe that if we look at Jesus who loves his friends and has power over death, how to rise. Lazarus, rise. The seven lessons from John 11, how to rise. Number one, Jesus went, so I must go. Number two, Jesus was moved and wept. Sometimes I will be moved and will cry. Number three, Jesus led, so I must lead. Number three, number four, Jesus taught so I must teach. Number five, Jesus prayed, so I must pray. Number six, Jesus spoke, so help me, Holy Ghost, I also must speak. And number seven, Jesus empowered, so I must empower. Then he went to work, and in the midst of everybody, what everybody was saying about Lazarus, Satan threw everything at him and the sink. Jesus raised him anyway. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. I did want to tell you that in Jesus' hands, our cases make all the difference. It just depends in whose hand it is. If you put a basketball in my hand, you'll just have a basketball in my hand. But if you put it in LeBron's hands, you have a champion. If you put a football in my hand, I might be able to throw it 15, 20 yards. You put it in Mahone's hand and you have an MVP. Come on, somebody. If you put it a golf club in my hand, I've never played golf ever in my life. I don't know what to do with that. You put it in Tiger Woods' hands and you have a thing of art. If you put a tennis racket in my hand, I would be clueless. If you put it in Serena's hand, you have a thing of beauty. If you put a nail in my hand, all you'll have is a nail in my hand. If you put a nail in Jesus' hands, You'll have the greatest of all time. You'll get justification. You'll get a release of grace and you'll get salvation. Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, come forth.